Hello everyone, welcome back to our podcast. We're glad that you can be here with us. Uh, this is our last week uh, on Isaiah. That is, it's the last week that the Seventh-day Adventist Quarterly uh, spends discussing Isaiah. It's certainly not the last week we could spend discussing Isaiah. There's a lot of ideas in here that we've uh, not been able to go through in depth. And uh, we may come back to the book, let's hope, in other discussions at other times. Uh, my name's Cameron, and uh, welcome to our discussion. It's good to have you with us. My name's Luke, and it's good to be here. And I'm Lachlan. And Ken's not with us today. So we are going to divert a little bit from the lesson pamphlet. We last week deliberately withheld from discussing Isaiah 61. And uh, we thought that we would spend this final discussion looking at the way in which the New Testament and particularly Christ, quotes the book of Isaiah. So we're going to start by reading uh, the start of Isaiah 61. And uh, we may not read the whole chapter. We could. It's not super long. Let's do it. I'll start, and I'm reading from the NIV. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me, because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim... Proclaim the year of the Lord's favour and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, and provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord, for the display of his splendour. They will rebuild the ancient ruins, repairing cities destroyed long ago. They will revive them, though they had been deserted for many generations. Foreigners will be your servants. They will feed your flocks and plough your fields and tend your vineyards. You will be called priests of the Lord, ministers of our God. You will feed on the treasures of the nations and boast in their riches. Instead of shame and dishonour, you will enjoy a double share of the honour. You will possess a double portion of prosperity in your land, and everlasting joy will be yours. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrongdoing. I will faithfully reward my people for their suffering and make an everlasting covenant with them. Their descendants will be recognized and honored among the nations. Everyone will realize that they are a people the Lord has blessed. I am overwhelmed with joy in the Lord my God, for he has dressed me with the clothing of salvation and draped me in a robe of righteousness. I am like a bridegroom dressed for his wedding, or a bride with her jewels. The Sovereign Lord will show his justice to the nations of the world, Everyone will praise him. His righteousness will be like a garden in early spring, with plants springing up everywhere. Right, and of course this passage does actually continue. I I can't see any break really between chapters 61 and 62. I think 62 just continues the the message. But we might stop there uh, in as much as uh, it seems even quite small passages of, of Scripture have kept us occupied for quite some time. So... Uh, we'll leave it there. Uh, this is the the famous passage. Yeah, th- well, this is the one I've been ha- waiting for in Isaiah. Um, this is the passage Jesus reads at the commencement of his ministry in the three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It doesn't Ooh. go so well for him. No, well, I think there's something there's something really interesting to look at here. How does how does Jesus's audience hear this? being read by him and his application of it. And I guess what I'm interested in is the way that we often approach the book of Isaiah looking for messianic prophecies. And of all of them, this is the one that Jesus uses about himself and invokes upon himself at such a defining moment. And to me, that suggests a kind of emphasis that perhaps warrants a closer look or at least just a quick re-examination of what is this key theme. But surely, surely the prophecies he should have quoted, Lachlan, are the ones about dates and numbers. <laughs> no, no dates or numbers in this one at all, Cam. That's very disappointing. Well, in what sense is it a prophecy then? No, but yeah. even that. Well, that's true. That's true, and I guess that's a fair question, Cam. As I <laughs> as I read it right now, could it not also apply to the prophet Isaiah himself? So, note what we read is written in first person. So it's not the spirit of the Lord is upon the Lord's servant. In, in earlier episodes, earlier in Isaiah, we did read passages about the servant. 
yes, his servant is described in detail. And it, well, but again, that the 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 tense or the the it's not tense, is it? What's it? the perspective? Yeah, is actually voice. relevant. The voice, yeah. When it says his servant will be X, Y, and Z, could also still be talking about Isaiah. Yeah, that's true. And then here, where it says I. It could also be talking about, I mean, it could be Isaiah talking about himself. It's interesting what you were saying about, you know, we see this as messianic. Would this verse have been read as messianic prior to Jesus using it the way he did? Or would it simply have been considered a historical piece, a record of what Isaiah said? I think they did ascribe to it messianic ideas, didn't they? Because isn't, isn't there some reference in the Gospels where Christ reads it out that it says that everyone was quiet when he'd finished or everyone was attentive or everyone was watching him. Am I making that up? I regularly read this from the Gospel of Luke. We should, we should maybe look at it right now. Yeah, it's in Luke chapter 4, uh, starting from about verse 14, after the temptations of Jesus in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus returns to Galilee filled with the Holy Spirit's power. And he... Um, comes to the village of Nazareth, his boyhood, Nazareth, his boyhood home. He went to the synagogue and stood to read the scriptures. The scroll of Isaiah the prophet was handed to him, and he unrolled the scroll and found the place where, it, where this was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. So that's the passage we just read. And then look, straight after it says, The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. Yes. So, so that suggests that there is some element of expectation among the listeners. And yes, yeah. and then it says that he, he, he talked further because it says he began by saying to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And then obviously he goes on to teach. Mm. And the initial reaction is not negative. The initial reaction in verse 22, because Jesus says, The scripture you've just heard has been fulfilled this very day. In verse 22, everyone spoke well of him and was amazed by the gracious words that came from his lips. How can this be, they asked, isn't this Joseph's son? In other words, they're saying, how can a carpenter be so eloquent? That's essentially what they're saying. But six verses on in verse 28, when they heard this, the people of the synagogue were furious. They mobbed him and forced him to the edge on the hill. Um, They intended to push him over the cliff. That is a fairly quick turnaround for the audience. So I guess it makes us wonder what what is it that Jesus has said between verse 23 and verse 27? Well, it, it does say there what he said that made them annoyed. Yeah. Uh, it doesn't actually have much detail on what it was he said between the quote and and when he uh, he gets them upset. Ah. Oh. We need to talk about this. Which is kind of the interesting part. No, we need to talk about it. The thing that upsets him is the fact that he says to them all, the fact that I come from the same village as you doesn't mean you're going to get any extra special treatment. Mm. That's what what really Mm. annoys them. He says, don't you remember that, you know, there were many widows at the time of Elijah, but God didn't send him to any widow in Israel. And, And there were many people with leprosy at the time of Naaman, and none of them got healed. In fact, if you read the story, there's actually a, a child of Israel who gets leprosy through the story of, of Naaman. So the, the, thing that, the thing that makes them furious is that they don't get to belong to a special club of God's blessed. Mm. It's actually a bit cross that, that Christ is suggesting that his ministry and more generally God's blessing might extend to people outside their group. Yeah. Yeah. And how does that, how does that fall on our ears after... After 12 weeks of reading through the prophet Isaiah. It's not a new idea, is it? No. <laughs> no, it's not. The, um, the, just one of the recent episodes, the, in around about Isaiah 56, um, where the Sabbath is invoked, and we commented on the fact that the Sabbath, you know, the Sabbath explicitly extends God's blessing to the alien in your midst. So by invoking Sabbath um, in this in this sort of contrast between the true sort of worship that excites God and the sort of piety that perhaps doesn't move God quite so much, by invoking Sabbath, there's an implicit connection to spreading God's blessing beyond the boundaries of your community. Yeah. 
I think one of the recurring themes of Isaiah, and it, it extends, as you as we can see here, well into the New Testament, because this is a classic example of exactly the same scenarios that were playing out on a larger scale in Isaiah's time, which is that when you guys get full of yourselves, that's when you get into strife. Yeah. Is when when you get proud about being Israelites, about being God's chosen, when you get to the point where you're using the Sabbath to give yourself leisure and forcing other people to work for you, that's when you you get into really serious well, trouble. Luke, that's when God stops listening to you. Thank you for that insight, Luke. And I just want to say how glad I am that the denomination I, I belong to isn't proud, and that we don't spend most of our time patting ourselves on the back and saying how glad we are that we belong to the church that has God's truth and that we're the church that follows God's <laughs> law and that you know ours is the task of, of correcting particularly... And we, we do a lot of missionary outreach to, to people you know, from other denominations and uh, it is our position of privilege in terms of revelation. We just have some revelation that they don't have and uh, it seems, uh, amazingly enough, that we, we don't have that much to learn, certainly not so much from other Christians. So... Uh, you know, what a relief that we're not a proud people. You, you <laughs> read the uh, direction of my thought quite accurately there, Cam, yeah. and le- leapt ahead a, a good few kilometres <laughs> along that path. Um, what, what I was going to follow with was um, to ask you guys quite genuinely, because this is something that I've thought about fairly often over the last few years, and this is when you were taught about sin in Sabbath school, in particular, because we we've all, we all went to Adventist Sabbath school. When you were taught about sin in Sabbath school, were you ever taught, Sabbath school or Pathfinders or any church context, can you recall ever being taught about pride? I, it's one of the seven deadly sins, isn't it, Luke? It is indeed. I, I, I remember it being mentioned in, in such listings, uh, but, but I don't think it featured as prominently as as many other sins that were more commonly obsessed over yeah one of this is a bit facetious it may not help but uh there was one person i remember um who used to say uh reflecting on their time at sabbath school that um sex before marriage is obviously wrong because it might lead to dancing (laughs) (laughs) And um, that was their that was their sort of summary on on what I remember very clearly of what we were taught of sins, particular, partic- you know, in terms of things that must be avoided, was that it was always it was always sins of the the body, mm. so consumption of alcohol, consumption of tobacco, um, letting sexual immorality, getting wet above your knees on Sabbath, um, getting wet above your knees on Sabbath. Um, did I miss anything? Interestingly, eating too much didn't feature then, <laughs> uh, but eating meat certainly did. Deep fried chips are fine though, Luke. Oh yeah, no deep deep fried chips as long as it's vegetable oil, not uh, <laughs> lard, <laughs> butter, yeah, bit iffy. Um, but the the point is, it was always that was always emphasised. Sins of character, I don't remember. I I genuinely don't remember ever being taught much about those except as you say Lachlan that they appeared on some lists from time to time but you know we would have a Pathfinder program that was specifically about why you shouldn't drink and why drinking was bad for you and I'm not saying that's wrong Yeah, very good good useful information absolutely accurate Um, were I not an Adventist I still would never drink alcohol it's hideously bad for you Um, at least not in any significant quantity Um, but we never had, say, a Sabbath school or a Pathfinder program about why you should avoid pride and why pride is bad for you. Because mm. when I observe things generally going on, macro and micro scales both, pride ruins so much yeah. in the world. Destroys yeah. relationships, it destroys entities, it, it, it ruins people's lives, it it traps people in corners that they can't get out of. Um, it, it's, it's a hideously destructive force. 
Um, and yet we live in a society, even within a church, which teaches, ostensibly teaches that pride is a sin. We live within a society when nobody is really looking at this as, as anything to worry about anymore. And yeah. yet you, you watch almost daily instances of where if someone had just been the tiniest bit more humble, so much strife and difficulty and hassle and destruction could have been avoided. Yeah. And the pride thing features in Isaiah. We, we have talked about it before, this idea that God seems at times to be this fierce warrior, the good cop, bad cop. Uh, what's come into focus, particularly as we were looking at some of the last couple of episodes, is that it's not random. You know, God God's not... Um, what's the mental illness where you... Bipolar. Where he, he's not bipolar. He doesn't flip from one mood to another and get stuck in it. And, you know... It, his his anger and frustration is directed very pointedly at at the people perpetuating injustice who believe themselves to be above the law who are beset with pride um they either don't care about god or they are convinced that god's on their side and isaiah levels fairly harsh words at both those categories of people in terms of this being quoted in in the new testament by christ as a messianic prophecy i think when christ said you diligently study the scriptures, but these are the ones that talk about me. He was not necessarily talking about the one or two prophecies, and I, I definitely agree that there are some pro- prophecies with some fairly compelling, you know, uh, numerical features to them, uh, where numbers add up and it equals this and it foretells the date. But, you know, the fact that Christ was... Um, Get, I'm making this up, but suppose he was born on a Wednesday. The fact that he's born on a Wednesday is not a reason to worship him. If I was able to tell you exactly how tall he was, that's not a, a, fe- a feature to worship him. Uh, that's not what you'd worship him for. If you knew he was the second coming was going to happen on the third day of a March, some point in the future, that's not a reason to worship him. The, the reason we worship him is because of who he is. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's because of this mm. passage from that he quotes. He, he's the person who came to set us free. We are the poor and, and to set everyone else that we care about free. That The prophecies that we tend to focus on in the Adventist church, it's not that I think they are... I think they're valuable prophecies, obviously included in Scripture for a reason. So I, I don't want to belittle them, but I, I would argue quite strongly that we've we've placed a little too much importance on them. I think when Christ was talking about these are the passages that talk about me, he was referring to broad themes, like this quest for justice. God's messenger is the one who comes to set people free. And and this is what really comes into focus, isn't it? When the Pharisees are talking to the man who's born blind, that Christ heals in John chapter 3, I think. Um, oh, I better look it up now. It's not John chapter 3. It's early in John. And, and at the end of it, uh, the Pharisees say, uh, we know this man is a sinner. We know, no, the Pharisees say, correction, the Pharisees say, we know Moses was a prophet, but we don't know where this man came from. And the man whose eyes were healed says, well, that's a funny thing, because I know I was blind and I can see. And what, what the man born blind is saying is, look at what this guy's doing. Hmm. Compare it to the scriptures hmm. you've got. Is he a messenger of God or not? And it, it's nothing to do with the dates and the city he was born and the year he would come and whether he had blue eyes or green eyes and exactly how tall he was and mm. you know it's it's about what he's doing yeah and all the controversial things what are the things that Christ said that really stirred up controversy he healed on the sabbath i think you know when we look back on our discussion of isaiah 58 was it we can see that that whole chapter very much supports christ that sabbath is a day for mm. doing good it's not a specific date based you know do the arithmetic sort of prophecy, but it is it is the Old Testament giving a clear picture of what the Messiah means. When, when Christ said, uh, you know, if I'd gone to Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented by now. You're too stubborn. You're too full of pride. The whole book of Jonah mm. is about that. I mean, what were some of the other yes. things, what were some of the other things he said that were, um, you know, he said to the with, the, with the Lazarus and the rich man, the parable, and Christ says to the Pharisees, you know, even if someone came back from the dead, you wouldn't believe them. There's, there's pages upon pages in the Old Testament of God intervening, doing miraculous things for his people. You think of the whole book of Exodus and it failing to have any sort of lasting impact on them. So 
the things that Christ said that really stirred people up are very well supported in the Old Testament. And and when we talk about messianic texts, I think we 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 become a bit too fixated on those ones that we can sort of do much as I enjoy mathematics. I'm not going to say that mathematics isn't fun. I, I just think that we might have focused too too closely on the arithmetic of prophecy and perhaps mm. not just close enough on the personality behind it. What what does it tell us about Christ? A really good point, Cam. And to put it another way, you could say we focus a bit too much, a lot too much, on the predicting the future element of prophecy instead of looking at the recurring themes of prophecy. Mm. And even there, the themes are an interesting one. The, the latter verses, the end of Isaiah 61 that we read at the start of this episode, there's some imagery there that I, I think, to my ears, feels much more straight down the line, gospel message, Protestant Christianity. Uh, in verse 10 of Isaiah 61, For he has dressed me with the clothing of salvation and draped me in a robe of righteousness. There you go. That's the Protestant Christian gospel of God through Jesus' sacrifice on the cross clothing us with his righteousness. Right there in a sentence. It's beautiful. But it's interesting to me that the passage Jesus is recorded as reading, you know, presumably he read more than just a couple of verses. I actually don't know enough about the cultural context of the Sabbath reading in the synagogue. Um for example, did Jesus even choose this passage or was it the scheduled daily reading? In more liturgical societies, it would have been chosen beforehand. That doesn't seem to hold God back. Uh, God can have had it orchestrated from eons earlier that Jesus was to read this particular passage on this particular day. I, I'm not at all bothered by that. But instead of the, the, the early Christians, when they're, when they're remembering the story, instead of them fixating on verse 10... They fixate on verse 1 and verse 2 to bring good news to the poor. He sent me to comfort the brokenhearted and to proclaim that captives will be released and prisoners will be freed. Mm. To tell, tell those who mourn that the time of the Lord's favor has come. And I find myself experiencing right here in this chapter the, the tension or at least the complexity that is often dismissed using the, you know, oh, the social gospel or the social justice gospel. Um, I don't think we pointed it out in this podcast, but I, I took a Sabbath school uh, just in the last week or two and went digging a little bit more deeply into the lesson um, study guide and was startled to find that the lesson study guide avoid, studiously avoided the term social justice and talked instead about social kindness and in the Sabbath school discussion that I was part of, a number of people agreed with me that it felt like a deliberate, specific sidestepping of a established, widely used and powerful phrase, social justice. And that seemed to be more politically motivated than, than anything else. And that, that's, that's as may be, and there's a global context for these things. But Jesus, the point I'm making is that in, his, in its application, in Jesus' invoking of this as being a prophecy that is fulfilled in that, in his audience's hearing. Right now, tell you today, this is fulfilled. His emphasis seems to be on the, the social justice part of this, rather than the, um, I guess, more, more traditionally described plan of salvation, kind of abstractified. Like, I've just had a look. Once you remove the parts of Isaiah that are telling a story, the story of Hezekiah or mm. whatever. When you look at the bits of Isaiah that are prophecy, strictly speaking, every second chapter refers to justice on average. Okay. Well, that makes the, the, the slightly bizarre choice of wording in the lesson pamphlet, I think, even more on the nose, personally. Uh, mm. Although I, I recognize the complexities of writing a Bible study guide for an absolutely global audience. Um I don't. I'm afraid I don't recognize it. <laughs> but it doesn't really matter what word you use. It doesn't really matter what word you use. You cannot run away from this theme in Isaiah. Yeah. And, and you cannot run away from it in the ministry of Jesus. And I would go further, Locke. If, if we believe in the universality of Christ, in the universality of truth, 
then I'm afraid our cultural preferences do not matter. Yeah. They don't. And any effort, this is the thing, and this is this is what really strikes home because we, we're guilty of this in, in large and small ways every day. Uh, when we are... When we say, I'm tired and ah, oh, and the traffic and ah, oh, and then there's something beside someone's broken down beside the road and do we stop to help or something? You know, in small ways we can be guilty of prioritising our own interests over other people. So it's, it's not just in big things, but it, in big as well as small. Uh, but but getting uh, back to an idea from our discussion from last week, when we fail to take other people's concerns and treat them as importantly as our own, their welfare as important as our own. We sin and we fall short of the glory that God in, intends for us, God's glory. What God considers praiseworthy. Um, you know, Christ said, the, the lords of the Gentiles lord it over their subjects. They tell them what to do and they sit there and they're in charge. Don't let you be like that. Sounds like pride. Don't, don't let you be like mm. that. That If you want to be great, if you want to be great in God's eyes, then you, you have to be a servant. Um, you have to serve the interests of others. And... Uh, we we talked to this a bit when we talked about the, the God's servant is referred to quite often in in the book of Isaiah. That's another theme that sort of cropped up. Mm. Well, the 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 essence of the idea that you just mentioned, Cam, is explicitly in Isaiah fifty eight. We talked about this. Even while you fast, you keep oppressing your workers. What good is fasting when you keep on fighting and quarrelling? Yeah. Mm. Have you have you seen the Rowan Atkinson sketch, where he's giving a speech, a victory speech at a at a uh, at a um, sort of right wing fundamentalist political event. So it's I, know, I think that there is a legitimate. I I, I don't think that um, I think there are legitimate legitimate concerns expressed by the left and the right of politics. So, but but there is a a sort of silliness that the left has in its most extreme. Form and there is a sort of silliness that the right has in its most extreme form, and this is a comedy sketch talking about the silliness of of right wing political, and and there's you know he, he gets up and he says you know the, it's what a great day to be a conservative the conservatives are back in power, what a one what a wonderful word word power is, and you know we're going to start instituting our agenda right at the moment, and it turns out that their agenda is extremely bigoted racist, um, and and xenophobic and and but it's all done uh you know uh you know i'm not against foreigners i i enjoy good curry but now that we've got the recipe there's there's surely no need for these people to stay here um you know, it's, it's done in this sort of way and he, he finishes the speech by saying and let's and let's not forget that it's easier for a rich man to pass through the eye of a needle than it is for a camel to and leaves it, <laughs> <laughs> leaves it there <laughs> because he gets halfway through and he realizes he's misquoting it and that it doesn't support his cause. It's saying the exact opposite. So he just abbreviates mm. the passage and <laughs> and just avoids the reference about the kingdom of God. Uh, it's it's very good. It speaks to this self-centered, um, you know, attitude which is which is very dangerous. Mm. So, you know, Christ pushes the boundaries. But it seems to me that Christ doesn't really push the boundaries. In terms of his, um, some of the religious people at his time obviously felt very threatened, sufficiently threatened that they killed him. So they, they felt quite threatened. But it doesn't seem to me that Christ is pushing the boundaries much further than Isaiah pushed them. Well, I mean, prophets were famous for having people try and kill them. Yeah, I, I mean, didn't we talk a few weeks ago about Isaiah being cut in half? Yes, yeah, that's right. We did talk about Isaiah's mode of death, and he's far from the only prophet who came to a nasty end. Because, you know, uh, as we talked about, I think the best insight that I've ever heard on prophets is that their, their, their job was specifically to sit outside of the hierarchy so that they could criticize it hmm. fairly, hmm. in essence, so that they could point out the injustices and the power imbalances and all the rest of it, because they weren't part of the system. Yeah. Of course, that makes them the enemy. Well, that makes them a threat to all powerful and unjust people. Yeah. Mm. Um, and so a lot of prophets came to fairly nasty ends. Um, and so in that sense, uh, Jesus was very much no different. So if we're to say, if we are to read, because we often say that the the Bible is is a letter from God to us, 
slightly simplified. I know, I know. In many cases, it's a letter of Paul to someone else. But ever said, but but there is, but we do, we do agree in principle. I think you'd agree, Luke, that God, uh, it is hoped that God will speak to us through the Bible. Yes, of course. So if if we are then the intended audience of say the Book of Isaiah. Uh, if we say if we if we are meant to envisage our thing, if we are meant to try and imagine ourselves to be the recipients of the messages in the Bible, and we read mm. the book of Isaiah, then that book is saying some very nasty things about us. Well, so yes, and we should always be open to hearing nasty things about us because they might be true, and if they are, it's very useful information to have. But this, I, I'm sorry, I'm going way off topic with this. But Cam, this is really interesting to me. Because I want you to think about the actual implications of what you just said, right? You said this by the Bible, Isaiah, is written for us, for us to read and, and benefit from, right? Yeah. Only us, us three here now. Or maybe Ken. Or, or does it have a does it have a wider audience? <laughs> well, let's let's hope a wider audience. Even okay, so how wide how wide is the audience of Isaiah? It was written a long time ago. Yeah, are we talking yeah. about? Are we talking the, the audience of Isaiah is literally everyone since that book was written till now? That's an incredible breadth of audience. Mm. Do you think it's possible that everyone in that audience, which which ranges from modern, um, I don't know, Chinese speaking people, all the way through to ancient Israelites, with every possible conceivable person in between? Do you think it's possible that that white audience could read the text of Isaiah and understand the same things from it? I don't think they would necessarily have to understand the same things. Exactly. Because they will see themselves. So, for instance, if you are a person being oppressed, if you're the person mm. who's... I watched a video this week. Everyone ought to go and watch this video, partly because it's a really good education about how scammers work. And there's a video by a guy called Mark Rober, and he's talking about how internet scammers work. And if you know anyone, you know, vast majority of people who are scammed are over the age of 65. You need to search for Mark Rober on YouTube and show it to every old person you care about and make them watch that video. Because it really talks about the incredibly manipulative psychology that's used. Um, but if you are someone who, you know, he talks about one lady whose husband died and the scammers had been tracking her computer and she knew that she was vulnerable at that time, and she got scammed by three independent scams out of a total sum of more than $40,000 in the week after her husband died. If you are mm. someone in that position, you're going to read the book of Isaiah and legitimately see yourself as being one of the poor and oppressed, the people who are being exploited. Mm. And hopefully, you know, as, a, as God's representatives on earth, there should be people in his church who can help someone in that situation and god is certainly expresses very strongly that that is that is the person he wants to defend there are other people who perhaps more legitimately should uh, associate themselves with the churched people the people participating in religious culture but who who may be a subject to you know some fairly blatant hypocrisies that are at least blatant to other people and mm. maybe we need shocking. So I th one of the things that I think, and this I think sort of addresses the, the, the point that you're making, Luke, I think that Isaiah is remarkable for its breadth in the, num in the number of different sorts of people that could read it and, and see themselves as the audience at various times. I think, I think it's got a yeah. huge amount of scope. Well, yeah, and that, that is precisely my point. So if the Bible is saying something to me and then it's also saying something true something true to me and something true to somebody who is completely different from me then it must by definition have many meanings um and i think that's not a particularly controversial thing to say about the bible that it's multi-layered multi-faceted very deep um that there's a lot of meaning in it it does suggest it's a bit dangerous to talk about a plain reading of the text though it suggests it's very dangerous to talk about a plain reading of the text. And likewise, I would be careful to not go too far in the other direction, because I think saying it's all subjective and can read whatever you want into it is likewise overly simplistic. Mm. You know, the, the two simplistic extremes are to be avoided, because when you oversimplify something, it becomes incorrect to the point of being 
a lie, false. Yeah. Right. Here's here's a, a little example of what you're saying, Luke, which is a thing that I wanted to throw in here because there's one very very subtle thing happening here when Luke four has Jesus quote from Isaiah 61. In my New Living Translation, in Luke 4, when Jesus says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor, good news is capitalized, uppercase G, uppercase N. Mm. And that's no accident, because, of course, good news in our New Testament era, in our Christian era, has become a very strong and powerful phrase. It is the word gospel, Mm. and, and it's... We use that word to describe the histories of Jesus and the description of his ministry, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Good news takes on a whole lot of extra layers of meaning. Back in Isaiah 61, it's the same words. The Spirit of the Lord has appointed me to bring good news to the poor, but it's not uppercase in Isaiah 61. And that means that when we read this phrase, good news, there's a lot of different inputs coming into it. And one of the things that I read some years ago that I got really, really fascinated by was it was in a Brian McLaren book called Everything Must Change. And it was he says it's important to remind ourselves that good news was neither a scholarly nor religious term in Jesus' day. It was a mm. political one, um, a term of public life. And he goes on to describe the way that Roman leaders would pronounce gospels. Mm. And, and there's this fantastic inscription, which, is, um, which has been found that, was, that was, it was in the Asian League of Cities, which was a subsidiary structure of the Roman Empire. And it, it celebrates the time when they decided to change all the calendars so that Caesar Augustus's birthday would be the first day of the year. And this inscription, I won't read all of it, but uh, it's, it's translated into English as something like, uh, since the providence that has divinely ordered our existence has applied her energy and zeal and has brought to life the most perfect good in Augustus, whom she filled with virtues for the benefit of mankind, bestowing him upon us and our descendants as a saviour, he who put an end to war and will order peace, Caesar, who by his epiphany exceeded the hopes of those who prophesied good tidings, good news. And that actually, that phrase is repeated again further on in the inscription. When Jesus, at the start of his ministry, reads from Isaiah 61 and proclaims good news for the poor, mm. there's a fusing at that point of the, the plain statement in Isaiah 61 of it being good news if you are released from false imprisonment and, and restored to be able to see. That's good. That's good news. Mm. But it gets infused with the cultural context of Jesus, which is, uh, you know, um, Palestine under Roman rule, where you have this political structure that has used this phrase of good news and of bringing an end to wars. And it's in. So Jesus suddenly is infusing this. There's a whole lot of extra layers going on. And I, mm. I sort of wonder whether sometimes we in the Christian era find ourselves so time separated from the context of the writing of the Bible, that we end up collapsing some of these things back to being simple, um, simplistic, I think was the word you used, sort of mm. one-dimensional phrases. Ah, gospel. The gospel is, and then we pronounce some description, some model of atonement, and we say, that's it. Um, whereas, in fact, it's all sorts of things. It's a challenge to power. It's a statement of God's power. It's, it's a alignment with themes of justice. It's, it's so many things the Bible itself. There are four of them. Yes. And they're all different. If we can go one step further, or perhaps develop your thought a little bit more, when the good news that Christ brought was not the sermon he delivered in the temple recorded in Luke 4. The good news he brought was not when he stood up and said, hey, I'm going to bring good news. It was when he actually fed the hungry and healed the blind. When mm. he actually did it, that, that was the good news. So when, mm. when you say... When we say, here's the gospel, and we give some carefully, um, the gospel is... We give a doctrine. The, the gospel is that we were separated from God and that Christ came and he died for us and that now we can live in eternity with, with God and that's what the gospel is. Well, it could be that, it could be that for the people we are um, talking to, that's not the good news they need. Maybe the good news they need 
is us in action. Mm. Like, like what I'm saying is yeah. Christ lived the good news. He didn't just say it. And and I think now, of and for any of our listeners who have got their bingo cards ready, I'm about to quote Adrian Plass. So, <laughs> oh dear, I've got the wrong Adrian Plass in front of me. The theatrical tapes. Where are the theatrical tapes? While you're looking for those, Cam, I just make the observation again. That, look, this is another example of something which... Uh, illustrates to us that we probably shouldn't be as hard as we are on the disciples for not understanding that Jesus wasn't talking about an earthly empire because he mm. really made it sound like he did. He was. You yeah. know? And this is just another example. Where else do you hear the phrase the gospel, good news, in these monuments to the emperor of Rome, mm. who was the greatest earthly power that anybody in, in that part of the world had ever known or heard of outside of myths and legends and, and mm. religions, you know. I found the passage. The passage is, in the theatrical tapes of Leonard Thin, which is a fictitious account, there's a group of people in a church got together to put on a play. And Vernon Rawlings has, has put together a script um, outlining a really sort of typical, average, normal conversion experience, what we should all be doing when we evangelise and we go and convert people, and this is what it should be like. And... Um, and it involves with someone sitting at a pub, and that's Charles is playing that part. He sits at the pub, and Vernon walks in and converts him. And uh, and at one point, um, Charles, who's playing the sinner in the play, says, uh, but enough of me, now that we are close friends and you have shown yourself interested in me as a person and not just as a form of spiritual scalp, tell me the origin of the love, joy, and peace that flows from you like a river. And um, Vernon says... As you ask me, friend, I shall tell you. I am a Christian, and the joy that you witness is a product of redemptive suffering apprehended through divinely implanted spiritual vision, nurtured and developed through appropriately organised exegetical study. And Charles says, Oh, I've never heard it explained so simply before. <laughs> oh, yes. So, uh, that's in defence of the my point earlier that good news that Christ bought was not standing up and giving a sermon and explaining his mission it was doing the mission mm. and uh, a mm. phrase that Clancy used Locke in an episode you went here she said that um, there's one that she picked up at college I think the prophets were not so much about foretelling the future as providing a commentary on the future in light of present events yes and this is this is something which they have in common with a lot of fiction as well, interestingly. Um, another very insightful thing I saw about, you know, it was one of these things where someone was going, oh, the book 1984 was really prophesying of the future. He really predicted exactly what was going to happen. And you have to go, no, he wasn't writing about the future. He was writing about the 1930s. Mm. He was writing about the present. <laughs> he was yes. writing about fascism in his present. It just, it, history repeats itself because humans are idiots. Yeah. And, mm. and what the prophets are saying is, you are currently acting in this way. This is the sort of future your actions will bring. But if yeah. you act in this way, this is the sort of future. And if you continue acting in this way, God is going to have to intervene at some point because he's expecting mm. you to, to be distributors of his love and <clears> justice, <throat> and you're not, and he's going to have to step in and do it himself, and it's not going to end up looking good for you. And if you, mm. if you change and do this, this is what will happen. So it's the principal purpose of the prophet is not to provide a weather forecast. It's to explain to people what their choices that they're making every day actually are. What is it that you are choosing right now? What are the consequences of your actions yeah. going to be? Um, and now all of that said, we, we have talked in fairly negative terms about a lot of things today, and there's nothing necessarily wrong with that. But I note that Isaiah 61 is almost relentlessly positive. Yes. And for me, Luke, Isaiah 61, uh, and I can't say that I've exhaustively word by word analyzed all the other chapters, but for me, Isaiah 61 is the pinnacle of the, it's the, the crescendo, it's the highlight, it's the climax of the book of Isaiah. Look at the themes that are tied together. It starts, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. The Lord has anointed me to bring good news. There's a proclamation. It's, it's bring the, the year of the Lord's favor has come in verse two. Some commentators have seen this here and in Luke as referring to the year of Jubilee 
at which point all sorts of different things like um, ancestral ownership is restored to families and things mm-hmm. and a certain amount of um, social justice resetting takes place in society. So that year of Jubilee is the Sabbath. An unique concept in the ancient world. Basically. Yeah, but it's a Sabbath of Sabbath years. That's how it's counted mm. out. And if you look, the theme of Sabbath is all the way through. Um, the, the, the prisoners will be freed and the people who mourn have God's favor upon them. There's, and it's all of the people and the poor. There's, there's lots of con- uh, themes of Sabbath coming in here. In verses 4 to 7, you're rebuilding the ancient ruins. Foreigners will come and feed your flocks and you will restore the treasures. And instead of shame and dishonor, you will have a double share of honor. This is remnant. This is restoration of the dispersed people. And right back at the start, remember, Isaiah had this son with this crazy name, which was a remnant shall return. Mm. So the theme of remnant and of God's, of God's people being restored is mentioned here in the middle part of Isaiah 61. And then God's love of justice and, and everlasting covenant with those who basically align themselves with God's passion for justice and and um, generosity uh, are pulled out. And it's written in extremely big picture stuff. I already mentioned in verse 10, the, the dressing with the clothing of salvation mm. and draping me at the road of righteousness. That is as good as it gets for some of the biggest picture of, of however yeah. you try and put together these ideas of atonement. All of the themes of Isaiah. Some beautifully poetic language as well. And I particularly like verse 11 um, and verse 4 for me. You know, this, this metaphor of, of you know, a, a, blooming, a blossoming garden, righteousness growing in the world, you know, like a, like a, a, a really well-looked-after garden. Um, mm. Sounds fantastic and much needed. But also the rebuilding of cities I find really interesting. Um, and the restoration of places, this, this concept of, of, of building and nurturing and caring hmm. um, for a place or places is, is, is something that our faith tradition doesn't really have or emphasize. Um, you know, there's not a great uh, environmental Mm. movement within adventism um yeah and it's something i find i find lacking because i am very interested in in you know the the building and the growing and the designing and the and the what was the word i just used and have now suddenly lost we talked luke about being um curators curator that's the word you got it yes the the curation of places or 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 things of value, not value in the sense of monetary terms, but but culturally valuable or socially valuable. One of the phrases that that uh, struck a nerve last week, and which which ties into our mission, and Isaiah identifies for us that very clearly that God has things he, he wants us to do. He wants us to participate in his in furthering his causes. And one of the phrases we used last week that that uh, stuck in my mind was that we are curators of other people's lives, uh, and and their concerns ought to matter. There's one last contrast that I think I'd like to pull out, and this might direct us towards some closing thoughts. Uh, Isaiah 61 refers to someone being anointed to spread God's message, and we began in I think our first discussion on the book of Isaiah with a very troubling passage in Isaiah 6 where Isaiah is anointed and he, he is anointed and to, to give a message, but it, it's not the same as Isaiah 61. In fact, it's pretty dismal. In Isaiah, it says, the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor in Isaiah 61. In Isaiah 6, it says, I've anointed you now and you've got a message. Your message is to go to a stubborn people and... Um, mm. Go and tell these and people them into being more stubborn. Go and so tell these punished. people, be ever hearing but never understanding, be ever seeing and never perceiving. Now, Christ does actually quote yes. that passage as well, but it's interesting that at the he doesn't use it to identify his purpose. Mm. He he uses it to warn people who are refusing to to see what's in front of their own, own eyes that they 
that they may be closer to the Isaiah 6 passage than the Isaiah 61. But the, what, what's suggested in Luke 4 is that what Christ wants is a clear message of good news. Uh, and his purpose is, is not to come and make things more difficult. It's maybe possible for us to make things a lot harder than they actually are, and I'm sure we do. But his intention is is to give a clear picture. Once we saw darkly, and, and Paul uses this to refer about the second coming, but it's also true of the first coming of Christ. We saw darkly, and then in, in Christ we see more more clearly. And uh, and I think that the Isaiah 61 description of God's messenger provides a much-needed balance, and perhaps finally we can find a bit of resolution to the passage in Isaiah 6. That Isaiah mm. is not really a book at its heart that's there to make things hard to understand, even though it starts fairly provocatively by suggesting that that could be the case. It's it is a clear statement that God is anxious and desperate to to work for our good, but it's our good in the collective sense, not the individual sense, and and He wants us to also participate in that message. We always looking out for where we can be His messengers, delivering good news. Mm. Yeah. That's great. I reckon that's a great thought to finish on because we're certainly time. Right. Okay. Well, then, uh, if any of our listeners have any further thoughts, they can email us at sabbathschoolfromhome at gmail.com. Uh, we are very uh, glad to see that people are downloading the podcast and, and presumably enjoying it because they keep on downloading it. We, we haven't had many comments for a long time. That doesn't particular, particularly bother us. Mm. As you can see, we, we have plenty of comments we're not lacking them. Exactly. But we, you must not feel compelled to write, but you should certainly feel welcome to write. We, we, the comments that we have received over the last uh, discussions, less in Isaiah than some of our earlier topics, which is interesting. Uh, but we've, they've been very welcome and, 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 and led us in some very interesting directions. So if you have anything uh, to say, then don't hesitate to email us. Uh, as always, feel free to share this with any friends or enemies that you think might benefit uh, from the podcast and any feedback uh, you can let us know. And we look forward to you uh, joining us next week on a discussion, the topic of which I do not know because I haven't looked at the next quarter, but I'm sure it will be interesting.